All right, would you please open your Bibles to uh, the book of Galatians? We're studying through Galatians, Paul's letter to churches in the, the Roman province of Galatia. It's thought that it's multiple churches that are being written to, a mixture of, of Jew and Gentile, those that were not Jew. And the theme of Paul's gospel, or this particular letter, is um, that the only way to true and absolute justification is by faith and by faith alone. And as we have seen extensively, that it is a mixture of faith and works that has crept in to this group of churches in Galatia. Some outside the church, some, some zealots coming from Jerusalem, it's thought. It's, I believe it's in Acts chapter 15 where it talks about they're coming down and saying that you have to be circumcised as per the law of Moses and also requiring them and imposing upon them uh, the observance of Passover and in order for you to truly be saved that these additional things must be added to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul is emphatically saying no. And as we have seen, he's, he's combated rather logically and quite compellingly as well uh, that justification comes by faith and by faith alone. And we find ourselves this morning at the beginning of chapter 5, I'm going to read the first 15 verses. And we ended in verse 1 of chapter 5 yesterday. And I'm going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 5 today. And I want to say before I read the text this morning, I was quite just stirred by the reality that all of our endeavors, when it comes to understanding, when it comes to pursuing wisdom, when it comes to Knowing and believing, all of our endeavors are ultimately a work of revelation by the Holy Spirit. And I was humbled in that moment that ultimately our insight comes because the Spirit of God has opened our hearts to understand the truth. And I found myself compelled again to read verse 1, even though I had read it last week. And I'm actually going to reteach it in part because as I was thinking about, it is such a significant truth in verse 1 of chapter 5 that I understand in my own life there were things that I read and read and read and heard and heard and sat under teaching time after time after time and understood it here but never understood it right here. And then suddenly it would be read or taught or I would pray it or something would happen and and, and my eyes would go, that's it. I saw a little bit more, and I saw a little bit more. And I just wanted, again, in, this, in our endeavors of faithful pursuit this morning, just to pursue and ask the Holy Spirit to give us understanding and revelation of his truth this morning. And so I want to read Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Then I'm going to pray, and I'm going to just take us through what I believe the Lord has for us this morning. This is the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. 
For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Lord, we ask this morning that you would wash us in truth. Lord, we ask that you would flood our hearts with revelation, that you would just envelop our minds with understanding. And Lord, we ask that you would Make the connection between what we understand in our heads and what we believe and understand in our hearts this morning, that we would live truthfully according to the truth revealed in Scripture. We pursue you today, Lord God. We want what you have for us and nothing less. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, come, lead us into truth. Lead us into understanding. Open our eyes to believe and to see and therefore live unto your glory. Amen. So I want to unpack today's text quickly in three sections. The first is verse 1, as I've already said, where while we might have heard some of it last week, I just felt like it would be good to remind us in hopes that we could take a hold of just what the full breadth of, and weight of what verse 1 has for us. And the second is in verses 2 through 6 where Paul presents three different consequences should we reject that justification as by faith alone. And I felt like it was just a good warning for us and something to stir our hearts as a reminder of that we live as witnesses unto truth into the watching world. And to ask the question, what does it mean... Should we reject justification by faith alone, or should we live contrary, is probably a better way of saying it, live contrary by somehow trying to add to our faith works or human efforts? What does that mean? What does that witness and say to others? And then last is just verses, the last two, verses 13 through 15, in which Paul is going to transition from theology to practice, and that's really what Chapter 5 is going to represent a transition in Paul's letter, and I've entitled this morning's text, The New and Excellent Way. Oh my gosh, my leg just cramped when I pushed that speaker. The New, that was ridiculous, like almost full-blown. So chapter 5 is going to represent a transition. What is wrong with me, people? Sometimes. <laughs> Don't answer that question. That, thank you. All right. Thank you, Judy. Judy's got me. 
Uh-huh. So Galatians can be divided essentially into, into three sections. Chapters 1 and 2 is Paul's presenting of his credentials, his biography. Chapters 3 and 4 is the theology of justification by faith alone. And chapters 5 and 6, which we're just getting into, Paul is going to shift now and he's going to begin to unpack the actual practice or the ethics, the Christian principles that, that are identified as governing our behavior as a follower of Jesus Christ. In other words, what does it look like now to live out of this truth? In all of this, in each of these things, brothers and sisters, as I've already said, I don't want us to miss this very significant truth, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's by the Spirit of God that the true gospel is given to us, that it's made alive within us to believe, and that it's carried out through us in this life. The gospel is the work of the Spirit, or the work of the Spirit is to reveal the Son. That's the sole purpose of the Holy Spirit, is to reveal the Son. In John chapter 16, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says that the Spirit of God will reveal truth and will take us and take what is Christ's and reveal it to us or make it known to us. That's the work of the Spirit. And so we can't neglect or forget this amazing truth. As I said, that all of it is the work of the Spirit to bring it about, not only in Revelation, but that it would bear fruit and that it would continue on through us in this life. And so therefore, anything that is not of the Spirit is not the true gospel. And this was Paul's point as well in the beginning of his letter, where he says in verse 1 that the gospel that I preach is not man's gospel. I didn't receive it from any man, he said, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the work of the Spirit, church, to reveal the Son to us to bear the fruit of the work of the gospel within us and to compel us and to allow us and empower us, is a better way of saying it, to live out the gospel truth, right? To not forget, it's the work of the Spirit. And the reason I wanted to highlight this just as we begin is because in contrast to the old covenant, which was a covenant of man's works, the new covenant is a covenant of grace by the Holy Spirit. It's an important characteristic, an important distinctive of the new covenant is the work of the Spirit. One was carried out by man to God, whereas the other is carried out by God on our behalf, by the power of His Spirit. And all of this is possible because of what Paul says in verse 1, that Christ has truly set us free. Christ has truly set us free. And then he says, now make sure you stay free. That's what Paul is saying in verse 1. I pray for a revelation of this church. Even right now in this very moment. That we would understand to a greater degree the freedom that we have been given in Christ Jesus. And I spoke a little bit on it last week, but I want to just remind us again here as we begin of what this freedom is that we have been set free into, that we are called to stand in faith within.
We're not just free from sin, from a sin or a couple of sins that we struggle with in our life. But we are free from sin itself. That is an objective truth that is meant to be lived and experienced in this life. Do you guys believe that? That you have been set free from sin and that that freedom is to be experienced in this life. And I know that I don't need to say it, but I'll say it anyway. Will we continue to sin? We will. But the New Testament pattern that we see within Scripture is a degree of transformation from one day to the next into the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby more and more and more what we had given ourselves to previously, we give ourselves to less. And, it, and we understand the freedom that we have and therefore we understand the grace that is ours to say no to that sin and to say yes to righteousness. And to take a hold of that day in and day out, brothers and sisters, Christ has set us free. Live as you are free. Do not take upon yourself again the yoke of slavery. But it isn't just sin that we have been freed from. The enslavement that came from Adam was not just an issue of behavior or what we do. With it came the penalty of death, eternal separation from God. And what's more, this enslavement came under the authority of the slave master, if you will, Satan himself. But through the power of Christ's work, the believer is set free from death. And by the authority of his resurrection, we have been freed from the hold of Satan. So not only are we free from sin, we are free from death, and we are free from the power and the hold of Satan. Take a hold of this this morning, church. What does this mean for you? No fear. Freedom. Let's take a hold of these things. But it isn't simply earthly freedom that we've been granted, as in that somehow we have gained our own independence to do what with, as we will. And Paul's going to talk about that at the end of his letter. It's not just independence that we have gained. It's a spiritual freedom that bears a physical fruit through our life. And I want to just hit each one of these quickly, and I know I'm going to be up against it, so I will do it quickly. Freedom from sin, through his death on the cross, Jesus paid the debt of our sin by pouring out his blood. The debt of our sin, the guilt that we held. He ransomed us fully by making a payment of himself and atoning for the guilt that we stood in before God. That is how we have been made free from sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took our sin upon himself. He became our sin in order to free us unto righteousness. And now our consciences are free from the guilt that sin brought us. And that, I read that in the beginning from Hebrews chapter 10. And we're no longer called condemned, but we're called not guilty before God. In Hebrews 10, he says, 
again, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We've been set free, brothers and sisters. Romans 6, 17, you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness, Paul says in Romans 6. And we're free from death. When Christ rose from death to life, he conquered death. He literally abolished death over mankind. And he brought through himself life and immortality, 1 Timothy 1.10 tells us. Death no longer, now no longer has a hold over us, church. But rather what awaits for us is life eternal with Christ Jesus. Will we die? Yes, we will. Unless he returns before we do. But now what awaits us is a hope of ultimate righteousness, of perfected righteousness experienced and lived in like Holden read this morning out of Revelation 21. That's what awaits us, brothers and sisters. Ephesians chapter two, Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And what does he say in verse six? And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our eternal reality of life with Christ is already fixed and certain and accomplished through Jesus. Through his resurrection, we were raised with Christ. When he seated, we and symbolically were seated with Christ Jesus through our union with him in faith. We're free from death, brothers and sisters. Do you believe it? And we're free from Satan. Satan's hold on humanity was only as strong as sin itself. But when Christ died and when Christ rose from death to life, Satan was overcome and Christ broke his hold over creation. The strong man was bound. And Hebrews chapter 2 says that through death, Christ might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And as I was thinking about this church, that we have been free from sin and free from death and free from Satan, I began to realize there is not a single aspect of our life that is not touched or affected by the freedom in Christ Jesus. Not a single one. And yet, why is it that we don't live experientially in that reality? <laughs> to be continued. But oh, church, that we would take a hold and understand this. Oh, that we would, that we would see to this greater degree that I myself would live in this freedom that Christ has freed me in to a greater measure. And so then, given the magnitude of this paradigm shift that's been brought about on our behalf, the question I think bears being asked, and Paul goes on to say, and to, and to as I said, give these kind of three consequences of rejecting, what, what then awaits us should we choose slavery over freedom? 
If all of this has been done and enacted to this incredibly great degree, this, this massive shift, again, the Paul's language is transference, right, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. What awaits those who reject the kingdom of light, so to speak, and, and want to go back into the kingdom of darkness? That's literally what Paul is talking about here, between the law and the spirit of grace. What is it that we're saying about Christ and his cross when we willfully choose the law over freedom? It's massive, isn't it? The first thing he says is this, and they kind of build upon themselves sequentially. In verse 2, he says that if you accept circumcision, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. This does not get much more plain than that, does it? What does he mean by that? Returning to slavery circumvents Christ in the worst possible way. To the point that Paul is saying that Christ is literally becoming of no benefit to you. This is what our actions say, church, when we choose slavery over freedom. With our bodies and, and with, our, with our actions, we're saying that, that the cross of Christ is of no benefit. Do we realize the magnitude of our statement sometimes? I don't. I was thinking about this for myself this week. Man, when I, when I willfully choose these things that are contrary to what Christ has done, that the, the, the testimony of what it says to a fellow believer or an unbeliever. Not that we would nullify the cross of Christ, but in a sense, we, we make it as nothing. Everything that he's done, everything that he's gained, everything that he's accomplished, accomplished everything that he has applied for us, we're saying it doesn't have a benefit. Imagine if you were on a ship and that ship was sinking and you and your family were hurried into a lifeboat and you were given everything. You were given fresh water. You guys were giving, given life vests to put on and you're on your way to safety and you decide that I don't need these things. You throw off the life vest, you dive back into the water and you grab a hold of the propeller. This boat's going to save me. That's, that's literally what is happening is an illustration of this reality. It's foolishness. It's stupidity. It's wrong. It's error. We're saying to ourselves and to others that we don't need all that God has supplied, that we're capable of saving ourselves. But remember, church, there's only two ways to life. There's sin or righteousness. There's life or death. And remember what Paul says earlier in chapter 2. He says that if righteousness were attainable through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And I know that we know this, but I'm wanting to just remind us, and I'm wanting us to get the revelation by the Spirit of God this morning that Christ has set us free and that to live in enslavement is to live in such a profession that the cross of Christ is not of benefit to me, that I can do it myself, that I don't need what he has accomplished for me. And I know we wouldn't say that with our mouths, 
but we live like that with our actions sometimes. And secondly, in verse three, he, he goes on then. He says, if you accept circumcision, then Christ is of no advantage to you. And then he says this, that anybody who accepts, accepts circumcision is then obligated to keep the whole law. This is the result of that choice. If you choose to circumvent Christ and you choose the law, you are now obligated to keep the law in its entirety. But who can keep the law in its entirety? Nobody can except for Christ. He's the only one who can keep the law in, in perfectly. And Paul says in chapter 3, he quotes Deuteronomy 27, Cursed be anyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of life and do them. And then he says in verse 4, You're severed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. And the only question then remains is, is this, what, what is left? There's nothing. There's nothing that remains for those who would choose the law over grace. It's a reversal of Romans chapter 7 that I read a couple of weeks ago where Paul says that we have been released from the law. And this is what the Galatians were flirting with in this moment. It isn't to say that they had necessarily chosen this, but it was a cautionary to say to them, be careful, be warned. This is what awaits you. You're standing upon this, this dangerous precipice and your footing is uncertain. This is what awaits for you. You are severed from Christ and you have fallen away from grace. And what I want for us to take a hold of this morning, church, is just a sobering awareness of what our choices say to those who are around us. What do we live for? Who is it that we live for? And what do our actions speak of when it comes to the truthfulness of Christ and his cross? Do our actions and our pursuits profess Christ and his death and resurrection? His overcoming sin, his overcoming death, his overcoming Satan. Does it speak of his grace and the powerful working of his spirit through us? Or do our actions speak of human effort, personal independence, bondage, slavery, and ultimately death? Which one is it? It's only one or the other. And so this is how Paul begins his foray into Christian ethics. And he ends, and you might remember in the end of, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, after having spoken on all, just the variety of the, of, of the gifts by which the church ministers one unto another, Paul makes this statement. He says this, let me show you a more and excellent way. And do you remember what he goes on to speak of directly following? It's probably the most quoted portion of scripture in every wedding that has ever been. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. What is the more excellent way that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 13, it's love. It's love. Look at what he says in verse 6 of chapter 5 in Galatians. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. 
a more excellent way, brothers and sisters. The way of the Spirit. The result of freedom. The result of a life that lives free is now a life that is oriented to service and works of love unto others. And this is where I want to land with us today, that this is the new way of the Spirit. It's a freedom that works itself out through love towards God and therefore towards others. And Paul will say in verse 13, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, he says. And his, his point is going to hit full stride, that this is the ethics of the new covenant coming into full view. You see that? This is really what Paul's point that he wanted to get at this morning, that a life of freedom produces acts of love and service unto others. And those who receive the free gift of grace are now free to live in turn out of love and care for others. It isn't now a faith that adds works It's flipped on its head. It's now a faith that results in works. Do you hear the difference? This is is Paul's thinking now. This is is the, the ethics of a Christian life. It isn't faith that adds works, but works are present. And we know this because James speaks extensively about it. It is a faith that produces works. And we know the the well-known quote by Martin Luther that says that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone, he says. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. In other words, it's good for us to not only expect, but to also look for in our own lives the fruit and the, the efforts of holiness that stems from our righteousness in God. It is good for us to, and, and we must expect fruit, brothers and sisters. If truth is really truth to us, then it bears good fruit. Again, Paul speaks on that, which I read out of Romans chapter 7. And John, in his first letter, he says this in chapter 3, By this, this it's evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Again, it's only one or the other, brothers and sisters. What are we living in? Freedom, grace, love, or slavery, works, obligation. One writer, as I was reading this week, he said it this way, the only kind of faith that is worth anything is the kind of faith that expresses itself through love. The scripture never says that we're justified by love. The scripture says that, nor does the scripture ever say that we are justified by faith plus love. Faith is faith and love is love. True faith is always a working faith. I love that statement. Think about that, church. True faith is always a working faith, a faith that works. It's an expressive faith, a faith that expresses itself in love to God and love to others. And this is kind of like the mic drop. Love is the outworking 
of genuine faith. Love is the outworking of genuine faith. It is what we pursue. It's what we expect. It's what we experience. We have been set free, brothers and sisters. But then Paul gives us this warning. Beware, brothers and sisters. Freedom is whose aim isn't to please God is just another opportunity for sin. If God is not the aim of our freedom, then what is? It's the flesh. It's the, it's the earthly. It's the temporal. It's just the opposite end of the spectrum. We've gone from over here under law and obligation, and now the pendulum has swung just to the opposite end, and it's license and licentiousness. licentiousness. And, and out of the Reformation, there came this, this term, which was antinomianism, which basically the word nomos means law in the Greek, and so it was anti-law. It's all right. That's all right. It's the view that Christians are released by grace from the, ob- the, from the obligation of observance to the, to the moral law. That somehow it's grace and only grace, right? That we're not restricted or, or held or bound by anything other than just grace. And so the pendulum swings. But we know that it isn't true because it's the grace of God, as Paul says to Titus, it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present evil age. That's what he says. So it isn't just all grace. It is love. It's faith working itself out in love, compelled by grace, enabled by grace. And Paul's going to speak further on this godliness in the next portion of chapter 5, whereby he says that the, there, there are these things which are the fruit of death, but there's also that which is the fruit of the way of the Spirit. And he's going to tell us to look for them and to expect them and to pursue them, that this is the new way through. But this morning, church, I want us just to land and to anchor ourselves in this reality. And I hope that, what, I, I hope that this was clear. I just felt... Like, almost these, are, these could be maybe two or three different teachings on a Sunday. But I just wanted to take us through Paul's thinking in this first portion of chapter 5 and hoping that we find in our own selves, just by the work of the Spirit, this freedom to live freely unto Him. And this understanding that, that to live in contrary to freedom is actually to live in slavery, church. But it's really a life that's compelled by love. The freedom produces a life compelled by love and thereby works because of our love for God. We desire to do good and right works for Him. Not because it makes Him happy, but because we love Him. Just the same way that when we gather in worship, we love to give Him worship. Why? Not because He requires it for us, because we love to give to Him who has given to us richly. Amen? I want to come to the Lord's table this morning, much like last week, just in the sense of an acknowledgement of what Christ has done in imparting to us a life of freedom. I also want to come to the Lord's table this morning 
with just a, a sincerity of heart before the Lord, if there are areas where we are not living free in our lives, church, believing today that Christ will free us because we are already free. That sounds almost contradictory in a sense to ask for a freedom that's already been given. But we know that this life that we live is not lived in the fullness of truth necessarily. It is objectively true, but it is subjectively experienced from time to time. And so I want to come this morning reminding ourselves this is what is true and asking the Lord to bear the good fruit of its truthfulness in our life.